I wonder how your Christmas shopping is going. I hope it's coming along. Um, it's weird if we come home and there's not like a box on our doorstep. I actually get disappointed if there are no boxes. So, and I was thinking the other day, I had the thought, I was thinking about my Christmas list, and I thought, I did not put underwear on my Christmas list. I, I know. But I really wish I would have. And I am thinking this is one of the signs that you're officially getting older when you actually want underwear for Christmas. Like, I could use some, a new, some new pairs. Thank you. And actually, this is a little bit strange, too. Okay. I will stop. But what I was going to say is super funny, and you're going to miss out on it. <laughs> I can tell you the exact type that I like. I can't help it, Mary. And Josh Hose got me on to these underwear, and they're amazing. Target, champion brand, C9, oh. That may be a conversation later. <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, uh, from underwear to our topic this morning, which uh, we are excited to continue to focus on. And that is, we do have this amazing Savior and Messiah that just, he came in such an unpredictable kind of way. Obviously, the prophets predicted it, but it's nothing that a human being would have devised. It's just remarkable stories. It's the story of all stories, and it's the true story of the world. And I was just thinking last night as we were at these uh, Christmas parties, just how ha hollow our celebration would be this time of year if it wasn't for the truth that we have a Messiah, that heaven has come in part through Jesus. And when he returns, he's going to bring heaven in its fullness. Heaven on earth, it will be as it is in heaven. Um, what we've been doing in this series, if you're joining us for the first time or if you haven't been with us in a while, is we're looking at the Christmas story through the lens of the Old Testament prophets. And Matthew, he does this great job in his gospel of making sure that Christ fulfills these messianic prophecies from the Old Testament. And so we've been looking at Matthew, and then when he goes back to an Old Testament passage, we've been going back to it. And we've two weeks ago, we looked at Matthew 1, and how he took us back to a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. And in that chapter, God was asking us, will you trust me, right? And then we uh, went to Matthew 2, and then we found this quote from Micah 5. And we asked the question that God was asking us through those two passages, will you humbly receive me? 
This morning we're going to look at another passage in Matthew 2, but this time it's going to lead us back to Hosea chapter 11. So let me pray and let's do that. Lord, we thank you for who you are. Thank you that you preserved your story for us, that we get to... uh, we get to mine for more and more gold, and we, we find in these passages that many of us are familiar with that the riches are inexhaustible. And we, we praise you for, your, for the riches, the unexhaustible riches of your word. Lord, mold and shape us, transform us by the power of your spirit. Grow in us a greater heart for you, a greater desire for you, a greater desire for broken people who need a Messiah, who need you as their Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So Matthew reports this, and this is sometime after Mary gave birth to Jesus in Bethlehem. Matthew reports in chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, And an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, why did Matthew include this event in his gospel? Well, I've been saying as we've journeyed through this series, he wanted to make sure that we understood that this prophecy of the Messiah, that he would come out of Egypt, was fulfilled in Jesus. So that's part of why I believe Matthew included this. But I also think there is another reason that Matthew included this detail. And I think Matthew wants us to make the link that Jesus is a greater Moses that is leading a greater Exodus. And I think that's why Matthew includes it at this juncture in his gospel. To understand the new Exodus... You have to understand a bit of the old Exodus. So let me give you just a little bit of its nuts and bolts. Way back in Genesis, God makes this this huge promise that through this guy named Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Among other things that God promises to Abraham, he tells Abraham, hey, your descendants, they're going to be numerous, like the sand on the seashore, and they're eventually going to become a nation, right? And Abraham's family, they did grow numerous, but they wound up being slaves in Egypt, and they were subjected to severe abuse as they were enslaved there. And God, what he does, because this is what he does, because he's a gracious God, he decides to rescue Abraham's family from the Egyptians. And he brings them 
into the land that he promised them. And, and, and the way that he rescued the, the Israelites, Abraham's family from the Egyptians, was through a series of plagues. And then finally, the last plague was that God would kill all of the firstborn sons in the land. And the only way for the firstborn sons of the Israelites to be spared was if they killed a one-year-old sheep or goat, took its blood, spread it on the door frames of their home. And sure enough, the angel of the Lord came and struck down the firstborn, but it passed over the homes of those who had killed the, the one-year-old sheep or goat. They took shelter under the substitute of that sheep or goat, and the angel passed them over. And it was the striking of the firstborn that finally moved Pharaoh to say, get these people out of here. I can't take any more plagues. And so they exited. There was this exit from Egypt, and that's why it's called the Exodus. Now, once the Israelites left, what did Pharaoh do? He changed his mind, and then he ended up pursuing the Israelites. And the Israelites were being, you know, with, with Pharaoh's uh, uh, army hot on their tail. They come to the Red Sea. God miraculously parts the Red Sea, allows the Israelites to cross. And then when Air, uh, uh, Pharaoh's forces go into the water, the water comes and collides on top of them, and they all drown. So this was the first exodus and then fresh out of Egypt on Mount Sinai, there's like this marriage ceremony between God and the Israelite people. God promises to be their God. The Israelites promise to be God's people. And the Israelites, they become this nation, and finally they are poised to be used by God to bless the nations, right? Unfortunately, Israel became just as dark and sinful as the rest of the nations. And time and time again, they, they fell into sin, and it was this nasty cycle they, that, that they got trapped in. And the passage we're going to look at this morning that Matthew quoted, Hosea 11, makes it clear that they were in need of a new exodus. And it makes it clear that we're in need of a new exodus. You see, although the Israelites were freed from slavery in Egypt, they were not free from, they were not freed from the ultimate form of slavery. And it was a slavery within them. And it's the slavery to Satan, sin, and death. You see, Israel needed to be free, not just from evil outside of them, but the evil within them. If Israel was going to be a light to the nations, if they were going to be the people that God had called them to be, they would need a greater Moses to lead them in a greater exodus. And so when Matthew quotes this, out of Egypt I called my son, and he applies it to Jesus, Matthew is declaring loudly and clearly, the new Exodus is here. The new Moses is here. 
time to experience liberation, time to experience freedom, time to experience uh, rescue from the Egypt of sin and death and the Pharaoh, the most nasty Pharaoh of all, Satan and his forces. Jesus is the greater Moses who leads us out of this Egypt. And you know what? He's leading us to the promised land. He is leading us to new heavens, new earth. We're on our way. I think another reason why Matthew quotes Hosea is he wants us to identify with Israel. And as we do, he wants us to ask some questions. If we're going to be like Israel was meant to be, if we are going to be a light to the nations, if we are going to go back into Egypt to rescue people who are in bondage, we must be free ourselves. And so we're going to turn to Hosea 11. We're going to look at this passage, and we're going to ask some really important questions. Let me read it to you. Hosea 11, verses 1, 1 through, or 11 through, no, 1 through 11. Sorry. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as though who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king, because they refuse to repent. And a sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. How? Can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zabum? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, then his son shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, said the Lord. The first thing that I want you to notice in this passage is the intensity of God's love for the Israelites. He talks about how I taught these people. I, I, I led them. I took them by the arms. I healed them. I led them with gentle cords, with bands of love. He talks about, God talks about how he was like, the far, like a farmer to the Israelites who takes the, the yoke off the animal and leads them to the food trough. In fact, he says, I actually stooped down and fed them. And so what God is communicating is 
He made it his business to know his people, the Israelites, to serve his people, to guide his people, to bring them to places of rest and nourishment and blessing. And here's the thing. Israel failed to see God doing this. He fa- Israel failed to see God loving them. They failed to see God working on their behalf. They failed to see how God was personally and intimately relating to them. In fact, the passage tells us that the more God moved towards Israel, the further Israel turned away. The more God loved them, the more they spurned his love. And this just tore God up. They would not repent, and it just tore him up. And so I asked you this morning, do you know that God loves you with the same intensity that he loved Israel? Do you know that God intensely loves you? Do you know that he is just as passionate about you as he was about Israel? Do you know whether you see it or not, he is caring for you? He is orchestrating events in your life in a specific way in order to draw you to himself so that you will have an intimate relationship with him, so that he will be glorified, so that you will be blessed? Or are you oblivious to all the ways that God is pursuing you and sustaining you and loving you and reaching out to you? Through people, through circumstances, like God pursued the Israelites, don't you see him pursuing you? Don't you see him desiring the deepest level of friendship with you? Don't you see him wanting to be your father? Don't you see him desiring to make you well, to bring you healing? God desires nothing more than you and the best for you. Look, if we're going to reflect Christ's light in a very dark and lost world, we have got to be so rooted and grounded in God's intense love for us. It's the only thing that can sustain us. That's why the Apostle Paul in his writing in his writings to the Ephesian believers who were living in a city that was full of people that were all into magic and the occult, he writes this to them in Ephesians three fourteen through 19. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of God, the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Abundant life, that's my prayer for all of us. And what's interesting is this comes, this passage that Paul writes in in Ephesians comes on the heels 
of Paul mentioning the liberation that we have from the Egypt of Satan and sin and death. And it comes right on the heels of Paul mentioning that this salvation has been offered to non-Jewish people like you and me. And I think what he's telling his Ephesian believers is if we are going to continue to spread that message, we've got to be rooted and grounded in God's love. We've got to know deep in our bones that he's empowering us, that he is with us, that he's caring for us, that he's protecting us, that he's providing for us, and that he's guiding us. Do you know this love? Have you come to Jesus in repentance and faith to know this love? And if you have, are you continually finding ways to remind yourself of this love? It is the only thing that can make you feel secure. It's the only thing that can cause you to fear less. It's the only thing that can allow you to let go of your people-pleasing. It's the only thing that can cause you to take bold risk. Look, you may believe in God's love in a general sense. That God is love and he loves so-and-so over here. But you find it hard to believe that God loves you. Because after all, you're more aware of your sin and your flaws and your shortcomings than anyone else. And so, yeah, sure, he can love Mary, but can he truly love me? He loves you intensely, personally. Let that truth wash afresh over you. He is caring for you in a tailored, custom-fit way. Everything that God does is characterized by him sacrificially pursuing our good. That's what it means that God is love. He created us for this purpose, to give himself away to us. Just a month ago, I sat down with um, a, a man of prayer, uh, and that's why I met with him. And he's in his 70s. And I was meeting with him because I want to always be learning about how do I cultivate intimacy with Jesus. And this guy's known for just being a man of prayer and a man of faith. He's in his 70s, like I said, and I was talking with him. And he told me it wasn't until he was 52 years old that he understood that God loved him. He grew up in church. He attended church as adult, as an adult, and yet... His image of God was this guy with a big stick whose first impulse was to whack you when you stepped out of line, so you better toe the line. God is not a short-tempered deity who is looking to punish you and who delights in punishing people. God is patient. He is kind. He is slow to anger. He is full of compassion. Jeremiah tells us in Lamentations 3.33 that God does not inflict from the heart or grieve the children of man. In other words, God's first instinct is not to punish. He doesn't enjoy causing people sorrow. God uses the easiest, the gentlest, the kindest means possible to draw you to himself and to produce the best possible results in your life. 
He only uses severe measures when the kinder, more gentler, easier measures aren't working and you're not responding to them. And when the good that he wants to produce in your life can't be produced any other way. In our Hosea passage, because of the Israelites' persistent rebellion, guess what? God had to use more drastic measures. And he allowed the Israelites to be taken captive in Assyria. But it worked because some of the Israelites stuck with God. They turned to God, and he was able to bring a remnant back uh, to their land. But if it's the hard way that take, if that's what it takes for God to turn your heart, God out of his love, he will allow the hard and he will cause the hard to happen because he intensely loves you. This leads us to another question. We must ask this morning, like the Israelites, are you on the run from God? Are you on the run from God? Are you chasing, like the Israelites, after false gods? And this question applies to Christians, or to non-Christians as well as to Christians. First, the non-Christian here in this room. Are you running away from God in the salvation that only he can provide? Are you unwilling to repent of your sin and commit your life to Christ? Are you chasing things that even if you got a hold of them, will fail to produce the satisfaction that you desperately need and crave. Do you find yourself constantly saying that once you finish that project or that home repair, then things will be different, then there will be peace, then there will be satisfaction, or once I have... A kid, things will be different, and then I'll be satisfied. Or once I finish school, things will be different, and then I'll be satisfied. Or once I get married, then things will be different, and then my soul will have the peace that I long for. Once I have the kids move out of the house, then I will be at peace, and I will be satisfied. Things will be different. Once I retire, then I will have peace, and I'll be satisfied, and things will be different. Once I get that job promotion, things will be different. Do you see that this is all a lie? It is all a lie. Do you see that if you do not find your satisfaction in God, you're not going to be satisfied no matter what your life circumstances are? Do you see that you're always going to be restless? You're always going to have some level of discontentment that doesn't enable you to enjoy the blessings in your life. You're going to be a walking person full of discontentment. You're always going to be comparing yourself to other people. You're going to compare your marriage to others. You're going to compare your home with others. You're going to compare your job to others. You're going to compare your kids to others. You're going to compare your spouse to others. You're going to compare your body to other people's bodies. If you're not at peace with God, you are not going to be at peace with yourself, and you're not going to be at peace with other people. And apart from God, you're going to eventually self-destruct. That's what happens. Are you running from God? 
Don't be like the Israelites who the closer God drew to them, the harder and faster they ran away from him. Don't be like the Israelites whose persistent running away from God caused God to use more drastic measures. What would it look like for you, the non-Christian in this room, to run into the Father's arms this morning? What would it look like for you to hand over the load that you are trying to carry that is crushing you? But you see this question, are you running away from God? It applies to us Christians as well. Because <laughs> if you read the, the first Exodus, what did, the, what did the Israelites who just had been freed from slavery, what did they end up wanting to do? They wanted to go back. Things got hard, and they wanted to go back to Egypt. And we Christians, our hearts are so prone to wander. Our hearts, even though we've been freed from the penalty of sin, God is in the process of freeing us from the power of sin. And so we still wrestle with the flesh, and we still wrestle with sin. And oftentimes, when life gets hard or ch- becoming more Christ-like becomes hard, we want to we run away from God back to the places we've already been. Are you running from God this morning and you're a Christian? Perhaps God's power is looking to to help you overcome a particular issue in your life, a deeply rooted pattern of sin in your life. And it's gotten hard as you have faced it and you've decided to stop and to run from God and to head back to Egypt. Perhaps he's called you to go to counseling, but you resist. Perhaps he has called you to forgive a person, but you you resist. Perhaps he's called you to pursue reconciliation in a particular relationship, but you resist. Don't you see you're going back to Egypt? Perhaps he's called you to be a part of a life group where you can be in Christian community and overcome some of these sinful patterns of behavior, and you resist. Perhaps he's called you to regularly intake God's word and spend time with him in prayer, and you are running from it. Don't be like the Israelites who the closer God drew to them, they ran. Don't cause God to use more drastic measures to draw you back to him. What would it look like for you, the Christian, to run into God's the Father's arms this morning. And still there is yet another question that we must ask this morning. If you are on the run from God, or maybe you're just not pursuing him, do you know that God's heart breaks for you like it did for Israel? The Israelites would not turn to God, and, they, and it just tore God up. 
God said to them, how can I give them up? How can I hand them over? How can I make you like the cities that have been totally destroyed? He says, my heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. Don't you see God's heart is just downright broken over the people he loves. God is not actionless deity that doesn't have a heart who's unaffected by our actions. If you are running from God or you're not actively pursuing him, his heart is tearing up over you. His sympathy is stirred because he desires a relationship with you and he, because he knows there's only death in Egypt for you. And do you know that just like God would not give up on Israel, he is not going to give up on you? That he will continue to pursue you? He will be faithful in pursuing you? Do you know that God will faithfully pursue you? He will not just hand you over without a fight. Now, of course, he won't force his love on you. He won't force you in the sense that he's going to make you love him back because that wouldn't be love. But he will do everything he can within the grounds of his holy character. Every, anything that his holy character allows to woo you to himself, God will do. Just as the shepherd was relentless in pursuing his one lost sheep, God will be relentless in pursuing you. And if he needs to, he will use drastic measures. Think of Jonah and the whale. Talk about drastic. He wants you to experience the new exodus. He wants to set you free. He wants to set you free from shame and guilt. He wants to set you free from people pleasing. He wants to set you free from all that worry. He wants to liberate you. He wants you to experience freedom in, in increasing measures. Won't you come to him this morning? God, he intensely loves us. God, he is breaking, his, his heart breaks for those of us that are running from him. He will faithfully pursue you. And so I ask you this morning, and I close with this, will you faithfully pursue him this Christmas season and in all seasons? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have come down for us. Thank you. That when you came, you preached, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Lord, how often we ignore this access to heaven that you have given us. How often we are unaware of how you're caring for us, providing for us, guiding us pursuing us, orchestrating things though, that we might cultivate a deeper intimacy with you, open our eyes and hearts to see your loving hand upon our lives so that we may well up in gratitude for what you have done for us and are doing and will do. And may that knowledge prompt us to go and invite other people into a relationship of gratitude to you. 
Lord, I pray that this morning, if there's anybody that's running from you this morning in any particular way, Lord, I pray that you would stop them dead in their tracks. I pray that they wouldn't want to stay in Egypt. I pray that they wouldn't want to run back to it. That there's no life there. Remind them that there's no life there. Remind them that the way uh, to abundant life is through you and through obedience to your will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.